If you have your Bibles this morning, if you would open to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 there in the Old Testament. You know, oftentimes, sending the wrong message can produce terrible results. And sometimes the message that we end up sending isn't exactly the one that we intended to send. I don't know if you've ever had that problem before. General Motors had that problem once. They had a very popular uh, model here in the United States, and they decided to introduce that model of car to the country of Mexico. There was only one small problem. They didn't realize that the name Nova in Spanish means doesn't go. So needless to say, they didn't sell very many of those uh, in Mexico that year or any year afterward. Same thing happened to another company. Their Their uh, slogan as they had been out in the United States was, turn it loose. It became very popular, turn it loose. Only problem was when that was translated into another language, the effect was telling folks to suffer from diarrhea. Not exactly uh, what you were going for. There was an airline that was called Eastern Airlines. They don't exist anymore, probably because their slogan, which was, We earn our wings every day, which sounds like a great slogan for an airline, right? The only problem was when it was translated into another particular language, the message that came across to those folks was uh, encouraging them after death to find a place in heaven, which may be a great slogan for a church, not so much for an airline. And even our kids sometimes can, can misunderstand uh, particular words or phrases. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of taking my, my middle child, our, our daughter there, to uh, a fish restaurant for her birthday. She chose it. She wanted to go have uh, fish. And, and so she's sitting there, and she's holding a hush puppy. And you can see the wheels turning right behind her eyes. And she says, Daddy, how do they make hush puppies? Do they kill puppies and then they make them? Now, this is after she'd already taken a bite of it. I said, you'll have to ask your mother about that one, babe. I don't (laughs) Misconstrued messages. The fact of the matter is, folks, we don't always do a lot better job in the church. When some people think about the message of the church today... They think about a message of moralism. They think about a message of do's and don'ts, and there always seems to be so many more don'ts than do's. I want to tell you today that the primary message of the church is not a message of moralism. When some people think about the message of the church today, they think it's a message that's putting forth conservative political agendas, telling you how you should vote on certain issues, what candidates we should put forward, and how best to toe the party line. 
But I want to tell you today, the message of the church is not about a conservative political agenda. When some people think about the message of the church, they think that this is a self-help place where you can find your best life now. And all the things that you've ever wanted will be, will be given to you if you'll just be, obey these certain things and attend church and be a good person. Your best life now is the offer that so many hear when they hear the message of the church. But I want to tell you today that that is not the message of the church. The message of the church is not a mission statement. The message of the church is not a memo. The message of the church is not a mantra. The message of the church is a man that I want to introduce you to, found in Isaiah chapter 53. And if you're able this morning, would you stand in honor of God's word? The prophet Isaiah wrote these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 52, he said, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You can be seated. Father, as we take our seats today, pray that you give us eyes of faith to see what we need to see today, ears to hear what we need to hear, minds ready to perceive these things in a heart that is open. And Lord, conform our will to yours. And as we talk about this great servant of Isaiah 53, Lord, may we understand that he is not only a message, he is not only the message of the church, he is the most important message that has ever been spoken. And every one of us must decide what we will do with him. Help us today, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to follow along in the outline on the back of your worship program that you were handed when you came in, you can do that. I just want to give you this morning three simple things about this man we find in Isaiah 53. Before I give them to you, though, I want, I want to tell you something astounding about this passage. You need to understand that the prophet Isaiah lived around the year 700 B.C. That means that he wrote these things down 700 years prior to the life of the man about whom he was writing. If that's not astounding enough, let's see a few other things this morning. First of all, the life of this man, his was a life of significance. The reality this morning, whether you knew it coming in or not, he is not only significant, he is the most significant person that has ever walked the face of this planet. And every one of us must recognize his significance. There's one thing that you cannot do with this man, and that's just to ignore him. Now, now you may try. You may try to just ignore him and say, well, that's just a story. That, that's just something they talk about in church. But I want you to understand this morning, the significance of this man is such that every person must decide what they will do in relation to him. And there are only two options that are left for us today. One of those options is that we might choose to reject him. To turn away from him, to deny him. The other option is that we might choose to believe in him. But I want you to know again this morning, to ignore him is not an option. He is far too significant. He was a man who was revered. 
In fact, before he ever walked on this earth, he was revered by myriads and myriads of angels. There were thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and billions of created beings that were created solely for the purpose of revering him, of worshiping him, of honoring him, of showing him glory. And he left all of that. To be born of a virgin in a lowly cave in the hillside of Bethlehem. He left the highest place in all of creation to take the lowest place. I hope you'll know why he did that before we leave here today. Not only was he revered, as it says there in verse 13, exalted, highly lifted up, but we also find that he was a man who was rejected. The news starts out well for the servant. He can be highly lifted up and exalted. But then it says that his appearance was marred, so marred that he didn't even look human anymore. That he grew up, which sounds like a wonderful thing, but he had no former majesty. There was nothing in him that if you were to have seen him walking the streets, there's nothing that would have necessarily caught your attention about his physical form. So many of the pictures that we have uh, that we say look like him today, the, the wavy brown hair and the glowing blue eyes and the beautiful Caucasian complexion have no bearing whatsoever on who he really was and what he really looked like. And what he looked like was not the most important thing about him, regardless of what our society tries to teach us about ourselves. He was, it says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That word acquainted there, uh, don't think that that means that he was just barely acquainted, as if he just barely knew grief and suffering. No, it means an intimate knowledge. It means daily acquainted, renewed. Day by day was his understanding of grief and suffering all throughout the 32 years of his life. He was a man who knew rejection. Secondly, this morning, his life was significant and his death was substitutionary. Now, I know we use big words like that and sometimes we get lost in, in these big words. And, and I sometimes choose not to use these big Bible words because we get so caught up in the word that we forget the meaning. But this is one of those words that if you miss the meaning of this word, you miss the entire message of the man of Isaiah 53. You miss the entire gospel. You see, the gospel is not just that he died. Sometimes we stop there. But I want to tell you, if that's all we've got, then that's true of every other person that's ever lived on this planet. Napoleon died. Julius Caesar died. Abraham Lincoln died. But he died for you. See, that's the difference. If we stop at the death of this man and don't understand the purpose for his death, that he was a substitute, that he was standing in the place of those who would place their faith in him. If we don't get that part of the message, then there's no reason to come back here on Easter Sunday. There's no reason to come back here next week or the week after that. There, there's no purpose in what we're doing if we don't understand that his was a death that was substitutionary, that he was standing in our place. 
to help you understand that, let me share with you a story, and, and it's not my story. Uh, it's a story my friend Billy Tabor tells as he, as he shares the gospel message. The story goes that there was a great king, and he had an amazing kingdom full of wealth and prosperity. Everything was going so well under his reign for many, many years. And then there was a group of people that discovered a particular plant in his kingdom that if you would grind that plant up and if you would mix it into some water and if you would drink that water, it would make you feel like you could do anything. Which sounds like a wonderful thing except for the high from that plant caused people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And crime began to skyrocket as people began to take things from one another. Murder rates rose as people began to take the lives of one another under the influence of this drug. Everything went astray in the kingdom. All the peace was gone and everything was a mess. And so the king decided, I've got to do something about this. And so he made a decree And the decree was this, that anyone caught under the influence of this intoxicating drug from that point forward would receive the harshest of penalties known in the kingdom. They would receive 50 lashes. That was the worst penalty that any of them had ever heard of. No one had ever received 50 lashes for anything that had been done in the kingdom. And so for a long period of time, peace returned because people were so fearful of the edict of the king. They were so fearful of the punishment that they would receive if they disobeyed his command. But one day, a young woman was caught under the influence of the drug. And they dragged her into the king's throne room. And they read in the presence of everyone there the edict of the king that said anyone caught under the influence of this drug will receive 50 lashes. And the king said, let it be. And in the moment that he said, let it be, the young girl looked up. And the king realized for the first time that it was his own daughter. How can this be, he thought. How how could she betray me like this? I I can't possibly allow her to receive this punishment. What what can I do? I I can't, and all these things are going on inside the mind of the king. I I can't let her continue and receive this punishment, but but I can't go against my own law. What can I do? In that moment, the great king did something that no one ever thought would happen. He rose from his throne. He laid aside his scepter. He removed his royal robes. And he himself knelt down in front of the men who were holding the whips. And he took her punishment upon himself. Folks, do we understand that this is what our king did for us? As your substitute, it was his punishment that brought us peace. 
We don't deserve to have peace with God. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And our sin is not just that we did a few small wrong things that can easily be cleaned up. Our sin means that we were living in open rebellion against a righteous God. We were shaking our angry fists in his face and telling him to get out of our lives. We not only broke one tiny law, we broke the totality of the law. And we were deserving of the punishment but our king stepped off his throne laid aside his kingly robes took on the rags of a servant and he took our punishment he is our substitute his punishment brought us peace his death brought us life he took our darkness and gave us light We see something strange, though, here in verse 9. Let's go back to it. Isaiah 53, verse 9. It speaks about his burial, and we notice that his burial was peculiar. It's quite strange here. It says uh, he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, this guy's dead. And then they made his grave with the wicked, which seems right. Someone who was punished in this way, it's obvious that there was a punishment being meted out that ended in death. Capital punishment is taking place in these verses. So it makes sense that his grave would be with the wicked because that's what you do with those who receive capital punishment. You bury them among the wicked. But then notice what it says in the next line. And with a rich man in his death. Now remember, Isaiah wrote these things 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth. With a rich man in his death. Well, that doesn't make any sense. We don't bury those who receive capital punishment among the rich and the wealthy, the, the popular people. But you look forward to Matthew chapter 27, you see that is exactly what took place. On the night that Jesus was killed upon the cross, it says, when evening came, there was a rich man from the region of Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus, though quietly because he feared the popular people of the day and what they would think. But he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus And Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and he took the body of Jesus and laid it in a newly fashioned tomb. The rich man took his body, and he was buried in a fresh tomb just for that purpose. That may seem like a small thing. Well, why are we talking about his burial? His burial is proof of his death. There have been some who look at the cross of Jesus, and they say, well, maybe he just fainted. Maybe he just appeared to be dead, and then they took down his body, and then and they put him in the tomb. He was revived, and then he rolled the stone away and got out on his own and left. There's only about 10,000 problems with that. Number one being the Romans were expert executioners. They had spent centuries perfecting ways of torturing people to death. And I can guarantee you, if anybody knew when someone was dead, it was a Roman centurion, like the ones that crucified Jesus. In fact, even they were somewhat astonished on that day as they walked by. Their their practice was, if those hanging on the cross did not die in, in in a certain amount of time, they would show mercy on them by breaking their legs so they could no longer elevate themselves to get air, and they would basically suffocate and die it was a way of showing mercy to those who might hang on the cross for days before they actually perished 
But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. And so they gave the body to Joseph. He was buried in the tomb. And three days later, we find that his resurrection was spectacular. And folks, this is the linchpin of the Christian faith. Everything rides on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If there is still a body in his tomb, if his body still lays in that place, then the Bible itself says, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, then our faith is worthless. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then I would encourage you this morning to leave this place and never return. And don't go into any other churches that preach this Bible either because it's all a fake. Everything that we believe as Christians rides on the resurrection. So Easter is more than just a day when we think back to something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's definitely more than about bunnies and candy. This day is the linchpin of our faith. Everything rides on this. Paul says that Christ has not been raised. Our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. But because Christ has been raised, there is newness of life offered to all who would put their faith in him. See, the Bible says he was the first fruits of the resurrection. That means he was the first one of many. And everyone who places their faith in him can follow him. Death will merely be a doorway into everlasting life for those who put their faith in him. And the everlasting life doesn't begin when you take your last breath. It begins when you're born again through faith in him. That's when everlasting life begins. You're not coming into this place today to get your ticket to heaven punched so that you can go out and live however you want to. You're coming before the king of glory who took off his robes and took your punishment so that you could have eternal, everlasting life. This is the gospel. This is our message. You may ask this morning, well, how do I know that he rose from the dead? Let me give you just a little bit of evidence this morning. First of all, his appearances were frequent. You ask any noted historian that understands the period of history in which Jesus lived, and they will tell you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most well-attested event of that entire period of history, of that thousand years. There's more evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And I'm not just talking about the Bible here, folks. I'm talking about historian after historian after historian of that period. Even those who weren't followers of Jesus, many of whom weren't followers of Jesus because it was really unpopular to be a follower of Jesus. But their common message, the historians of that day, their common message was this. Even if they discounted the resurrection, even if they didn't really believe in Jesus, they all hinted at the fact that something spectacular took place. Because how could it be that this ragtag band of of fishermen and outcasts and a few uh, women that are associated with that group, how could it be that that there's this group that had no political power, no economic power, no military power, no power of any kind to speak of, how could it be that this tiny group went from a handful to a multitude in a matter of weeks? 
And how could it be that in the course of the next hundred years after his death, they completely turned the world upside down? And how could it be that within 200 years, the same Roman Empire that had crucified him was now publicly proclaiming him from the top down? How could that be unless something spectacular happened that day in Jerusalem, three days removed from his crucifixion? Folks, whatever you believe about the resurrection... Anybody worth their salt has to understand that something magnificent and world-changing happened. But beyond being magnificent and world-changing, I want you to understand this morning, it's meant to be magnificent and life-changing for you. The reality of the resurrection is not just a historical event. It's not something that we can just say, well, yeah, that happened. The happening bears great weight on you in this way. You have to determine what you'll do with this one who rose from the dead. Paul spoke about more evidence in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's saying, this is top shelf stuff, guys. This is the message of everything else that you're hearing. Know that this is of most importance. What is it? That Christ died for us for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures? Isaiah 53 and there are various other places I could show you in the Old and New Testament. And then what happened after he was raised? That he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, his apostle, then to the twelve. And then it goes on from there. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one Time. Now let's stop there for a moment. If there was a crime committed and you had 500 eyewitnesses that saw the event, that saw the theft or the murder or whatever that crime might be, do you think that that individual would be convicted? You better hope so, or our justice system is more messed up than I think it is. If you had 500 eyewitnesses, not that just saw him at various times and not just ones that necessarily would have been convinced just by some crazy whim or wanted to make up some crazy story. You had 500 people that attested to an event that no one even thought was possible. How could someone be dead and not just dead, but Roman crucifixion dead and come back from that death? To life and walk on the earth for 40 days before he lifted off and ascended back into heaven. How could that be? But it was. 500 eyewitnesses, and Paul goes on to say, most of whom are still alive. What he was saying to the people of his day was, go and ask them. You don't have to believe me. Go and ask him. I'll give you the list. You can go and track them down. Now, some of them have, 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 it says, fallen asleep, basically. Some of them have died, but there's many of them still around, Paul was saying. And he said, and if you don't believe that, understand this. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, what does he say? As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See, Paul was saying, I saw him. The Apostle Paul, when he was known as Saul, was going to Damascus. He was traveling that road for one singular purpose, 
to capture and to persecute and to imprison and to kill as many of the followers of this Jesus of Nazareth as he could possibly find because he considered all of these people a threat to what he believed to be the truth. But as he was on his way to Damascus seeking to persecute the followers of Christ, it says that a bright light shone so bright that he was blinded for days to come and he heard the voice of the Lord and Jesus appeared to him there on the road to Damascus and the one who was the persecutor became the preacher. And we understand from his evidence that the resurrection is real. But you may say, okay, fine. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. So what does that have to do with me? Here it comes for you this morning. Think back to the story of the king and understand that this king who is described as a servant in Isaiah 53 simply because he stepped off his throne and stepped into our world to pay the penalty for our sins, that this king, his reign is forever. And so you may think here in this moment, well, what does that have to do with me really? Isn't this just some historical event that I can just kind of take it or leave it? You cannot do that. Ultimately, you must ask this question, what will you do with this man? And only two options remain. You will either reject him or you'll put your faith in him. His reign is forever. And the Apostle John described what he saw in a vision of a day yet to come. Just as Isaiah was describing a day yet to come 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, so the Apostle John did the same in Revelation chapter 4. Let's look at it for a minute this morning. The Apostle John said, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We sang that this morning, didn't we? We joined in a chorus that is going on in heaven perpetually. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that is in the sea and all that is in them saying what? Here's what they're saying. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The reason that you must decide what you will do with the man of Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows who has become the king of glory, the reason that you must decide what you will do with him is because his reign will last forever. It's already begun. Jesus came bringing the inauguration of his kingdom. And when he ascended back into heaven, He went there to prepare a place for those who would trust in him. And this morning I would say to you, based on the authority of the scriptures, based upon the word of God, I would say to you this morning, you must answer this question. What will you do with this man? It's not just me asking the question. If you look back at verse 1, Isaiah 53 verse 1. 
This is the question of Easter and every other day of our lives. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the most important question that you will ever answer. Have you believed the message of the man of sorrows who became the king of glory? The path between the two involved a cross, him bearing all of our shame, all of our suffering. Every punishment that should have been ours was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And you can only receive this healing apart from faith. This is far more than a healing from cancer. This is is far more than any physical healing that we could possibly think of. This is a renewal of what was dead in us. The Bible says because of our sins, we are dead in our transgressions. There is no hint of spiritual life in us until God resurrects from the dead those who trust Christ by faith. So what will you do with this man? He's reaching out with his strong arm, beckoning you to come in. His strong arm is his salvation, and he's saying, Come to me, all you are weary, you're heavy laden. The burdens of this world are heavy upon you. Your sin is heavy upon you. Death is creeping at your door. You don't have any way to master it yourself. Come to me, all you weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And that rest means peace with God. That rest means joy unending. That rest means salvation for all eternity. That means life in abundance that begins now and exists forever. That is what he is offering you freely. You could never earn it. You'll never be able to deserve it. You'll never be good enough because you were never meant to be. He was more than good enough. And what he did was good enough for us. The question is this. Have you believed? In him. You say, well, what does that look like, really? I mean, what what does it mean to believe in him? It's very simple. Jesus always called people to two things in following him. He said, I call you to repentance and faith. Repentance means that I turn from my sin, and faith means that I trust in him. To turn into trust. It's that simple. And you think, well, how could it be that simple? Surely I've got to do a bunch of stuff. I've got to complete a a list of requirements. I've got to do all. It was never one of any of those things. It was all done by him at the cross for you. That's why it's called a gift. But a gift has to be received. And this one is received by repentance and faith. Turning from your sin and trusting in Christ to save you. Not just to get your ticket to heaven punched, to change your very existence. From the inside out, he will change your life. And if you think you've come to know him and your life has not been changed, you might want to make sure that you met the guy from Isaiah 53. Because there's a lot of false Christs out there. I'll leave you today with a quote 
from John Newton. We sing this song, Amazing Grace, and we're going to sing it this morning before we depart. John Newton was a, a slave trader. He ran a slave ship, and he was, he was involved in a great number of atrocities in the early part of his life. He was a very, very wicked and evil man by his own attestation. But he came to know Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. And as he was in his elder years, as he was beginning to lose his eyesight, as he was beginning to lose his mental faculties, John Newton said this. He said, you know, I've forgotten many things, but these two things I remember very well, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Do you know those truths today? More than just a message that you hear at church on Easter Sunday, do you know in the very pits of your soul that you are a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior? Have you turned from your sins and trusted in Christ? If not this morning, we have a great invitation for you. The Bible says whenever we hear the word preached, that we shouldn't just be hearers of the word and go away unchanged. We should become doers of the word. And the word is saying to us today, if you've not trusted Christ by faith, then we encourage you to step out from where you are as we sing this last song. We're going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come and to join me. As we sing this song, we encourage you to step out from where you are. Kent and I will be here at the front, and there is nothing extra special or holy about us. We're just the messengers. We come today saying, this is our message. Christ lived the perfect life. He died in your place, and he rose from the dead so that you could have everlasting, abundant, eternal life in him. This is the greatest news that we could ever give you. The question of Isaiah 53.1 remains. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If that's you today, we invite you to come to respond to the gospel. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the message of salvation that's found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thank you that though we were great sinners that deserved eternal separation from you because of our great sin, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, taking our place at the cross, taking all of our punishment and giving us peace, taking all of our death and giving us life, taking all of our darkness and bringing us light. And now it's time for us to respond, Lord, so give us faith. We know it's a gift from you. Many of these things are hard to believe. In fact, impossible apart from the gift of faith. So give us the gift of faith, Lord. To look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and is now seated at the right hand of God in glory. He will reign forever and ever.
Lord, help us to turn from our sin and to trust in him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.